0: You know, one of the practical benefits of grace that we just sang about, by trusting in grace, is that it allows us to overcome the default mechanism of the human heart. And one of the default mechanisms of the human heart is deflection. We deflect feedback or criticism instead of allowing God to use it in our lives to conform us in the image of His Son. In fact, I was reading a book called Thanks for the Feedback, After going to the Willow Creek Summit this year and hearing one of the speakers describe how difficult it is for most people to receive feedback. If you were with us last week, Doug shared how Jesus just gave some pretty brutal feedback to the religious leaders about worship, about the temple, and they are going to respond to that feedback in the chapter we look at today. She noted that we need three types of feedback. We need encouraging feedback, we need coaching feedback, and we also need evaluation feedback. But often, when we feel evaluated, we can't hear the coaching or the encouragement. I likened, or well, really uh, connected with this example she gave. In college, or in your master's degree, you got a paperback from a teacher. You got that paperback, what's the first thing you did? If you're like me, I flipped over and I found what grade I got. And immediately, I made a decision. I would say I was an A student, for example, so I'd say, "Hey, this teacher knows what she's talking about. She recognizes good work. Now, there were comments... In the previous pages, little coaching tips on how I could do better. But why would I need that? I just got an A. So I ignored the feedback because clearly I've already arrived. Other times I would get a paper. I'd flip open. I'd be like, a C, a C. What is wrong with this lady? She clearly does not recognize, or him, does not recognize great work. Am I going to then listen to their coaching feedback? Why would I listen to coaching feedback to somebody who doesn't recognize great work? I don't want their feedback. So whether I got an A or a C or a D, Ultimately, I filtered out the coaching feedback because of the evaluation feedback. I deflected. Bill Hybels, who puts on this conference, shared that one of his challenges is that he really likens his strengths, that he says he's great under pressure. But he said a statistic came out that said that all of us have, statistically, 3.4 blind spots. Not weak spots that we know about and we're working on. 3.4 blind spots. Things we are totally oblivious that are weaknesses that we, that we do in relationships and our handling of anger and our handling of our identity. 3.4. To which if you're like me, you said, well, I must be on the low end of that. I'm probably a 1.7 or maybe a 1. I can't imagine I have 3.4. That's a blind spot right there. And he said that he really saw himself as a person who was great under pressure. And one day during a very challenging time in the organization, one of his longtime colleagues, who's a friend and a colleague, came in. And he said, he said, how are you doing, Bill? And he says, "Oh, things are going great for now. We're really under pressure, all the stuff going on. Thank goodness I'm really good under pressure. And his colleague and friend burst out laughing. <laughs> good under pressure? Are you kidding me? Every time you're under pressure, you get on the crazy train. And I, for one, am not riding it with you this time. And she walked out of the room. He was shocked. What? What? He called up a couple other friends. So and so was just in my office and said that I'm not great under pressure. To which his other friend said, Everybody knows you're not good under pressure. You get on the crazy train and want everyone to get on with you. Deflection. It's the tendency of the human heart, which means if we are going to allow God to do the full work in us, we've got to intentionally inspect rather than deflect. Feedback when we receive it. See, most of us blame it. We, we, we get feedback in a particular areas of our life. Maybe professionally we're good at it, but we're not really good at doing it at home. Or of us are good at doing it at home, but there's some way in which we're blind to certain areas of our life. So we blame it. We say that no part of that feedback is correct. That's deflection. The inspection is what part might be true. Critiquing feedback is, I don't like their motives. I don't like how they said it. They don't have my best interests at heart. Inspection is, well, what if despite all that being true, what if part of what they said had a nugget of truth that I need to hear? That's what it looks like to intentionally inspect feedback rather than deflect it. So we're going to look today at deflection, how the Pharisees respond to Jesus, and inspection, how he begins to look at their track record. Because it's really interesting, after Jesus just really critiqued the temple, the worship system, the way they're handling it, The Pharisees respond in a really unique way. There's a Greek word that literally means, thanks for the feedback. And when Jesus speaks to them and tells them that their temple worship has become hypocritical and and idol worship, they respond in such a way that means, thank you for the feedback, we appreciate that. No, they don't. They don't at all. They totally deflection, they get mad at him, they question his credentials. And have you ever had a friend... Some of you are saying, yes, I've had several friends. But have you ever had the kind of friend who is able to tell you hard truths? I mean, you can hear it from your kids. You're not going to listen. You can hear it from a colleague. You can hear from a boss. But you've got that one friend who has that unique ability to put enough grace to be the sugar that helps the medicine of the truth go down. Jesus wants to be that friend who says, I love you unconditionally and you're safe. And what I'm going to share with you doesn't change how I feel about you. doesn't change your identity, but it's going to help you grow. That's what Jesus wants to offer to us and what he's trying to offer to the Pharisees in this passage today, or the scribes in this case. So let's jump in. We're going to look at the deflection as the scribes question his credentials and then the inspection as he begins to examine their track record. Then they came to Jerusalem, Jesus and the disciples, and as he was walking into the temple, the chief priests... We just got this feedback. The chief priests, the scribes and the elders came to Jesus and they said to him, thanks for the feedback. No, they said, by what authority did you do those things? And who gave you that authority to do these things? They repeat it twice. They question his authority and they ask him what right he had to say these things. Deflection. Deflection. You came into our temple where we're experts in the law or we've set up a system or we've talked about worship. You've come in the most holy week of the year, Passover, and you are questioning how we're running things. They didn't say, well, that's got a good point. We are cheating the Gentiles. It does have a good point. This has become more about exploiting money from people who don't know any better rather than actually making it a house of prayer. They don't inspect any of the feedback for truth. They just deflect it all and say, you have no right to say it. You have no right to do it. And these things that are mentioned twice here is the cleansing of the temple. And they deflect it. Now, Jesus uses two phrases in his feedback. My father's house was to be a house of prayer from Isaiah, and you've made it a den of thieves from Jeremiah. Now these scribes knew those passages, so they could immediately extract from the passages that Jesus was quoting a whole bunch of other feedback. Which I want to look at those passages. Because Jesus is giving them a mountain of feedback. Two mountains, in fact. One mountain embedded in one phrase is that they are engaged in hypocrisy. The other mountain is that they are engaged in idolatry. Let's look at them together. The first passage that Jesus referenced was that my house shall be called a house of prayer. That comes out of Isaiah chapter 56. Because of the way they were treating the Gentiles, by pushing them out, exploiting them, giving them a bad taste in their mouth toward religion, that comes right out of Isaiah. Look how many times he mentions the foreigner, the Gentile. Also the sons of the foreigner, the non-Jews, who want to join themselves to the Lord. They want to serve Him. They want to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, not just Jews, and holds fast to My covenant. Even them I will bring to My holy mountain. Now, Jerusalem was built up on a mountain, which is why the Gospels say everybody always goes up to Jerusalem. He says, My mountain, My worship, My place, the place I call people to, it's, it's designed to bring the convinced and unconvinced, the Jews and the Gentiles together. That's what My plan was. That was My goal to reach all nations. To make them... The unconvinced, the Gentile, the non-Jewish person, joyful in the house of prayer. Wow! Tell me about your God. He did what with Abraham? Moses? Tell me your story. And their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted at my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others, not just Jews, others besides those who are gathered to him. And Jesus says, my house is not a house of prayer that's drawing in the Gentiles. You've turned to a place that turns off the Gentiles with your hypocrisy, with your financial exploiting of them, with your cheating of them by saying their, their lambs don't qualify and therefore you sell them an overpriced lamb. You're doing the opposite of drawing people in. One of the reasons I talk so often about our two-service design is because we believe that at churches in general, the natural tendency of a Christian is to go towards self-centeredness. We stop hanging out with people who are unconvinced. We start judging them. Oh, I can't believe the way they parent their kids. I can't believe they believe that thing or that. We get sort of snooty and proud and arrogant, and we begin to treat the unconvinced. And meanwhile, they're watching us and they're seeing our snootiness and saying, I don't want to have anything to do with that God or church going because those are snooty people. It's hypocrisy. And God takes it very seriously enough that Jesus gave this mountain of feedback specifically to the scribes on that. The other phrase he uses comes out of Jeremiah. It's an interesting phrase. You have made my house a den of thieves, which again came with a whole lot of additional feedback for those who knew the passage. Look what he says. In Jeremiah, Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal? And will you walk after other gods? In other words, you know the reason why, scribes, you have so messed up God's system? You put some idol ahead of God. You, you have making money more important than the worship of God. You have... Keeping your power in the role of the Sadducees more important than God. And because that power was so important, you create a whole system, a monopoly set up to keep your power. You set up an idol right in the middle of my house of worship. And then, after you walk after other gods whom you do not even know, and then come and stand before me while you worship something else in my house, which is called by my name. And you say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, even I, I, even I have seen it, says the Lord. So the second mountain of feedback he gives is idolatry. What's really dri- driving your bad behavior is you've set up an idol in your life. Now here's what's fascinating. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus came across the Mount of Olives between Besage and Bethany, and he came up and he cleansed the temple. What's interesting, in the Mount of Olives, was also a mountain. Back in its day, it looked something like this. And it was called the Mount of Olives because it was an olive orchard. So these were all olive uh, orchards up here. And down here is a Gethsemane, which is an olive press. We'll talk about that in about eight weeks. So Jesus up here, you know, very often he would pray in this area. Very often he would be in this area. But if you were standing here, it's interesting that you can see two mountains. You'd have a great perspective on the temple and another mountain as well. Let me show you what it looks like today. A lot of that uh, olive orchard is gone. In fact, now it's all concrete because this is where people have actually put tombs because they know when the Messiah comes, he's going to come there first. And so Jewish, Muslim have different beliefs, but they ultimately want to be buried here on the Mount of Olives so they're the first to be raised from the dead. So it's a lot of concrete here these days. Then this is the uh, church set up by the uh, garden, which is next to the Gethsemane. Again, we'll talk about that uh, later. But here's what I want you to see. Imagine you're standing on the Mount of Olives. We're going to show you what it looks like to look this direction. Let me change colors here. To look this direction, and then I want you to turn 45 degrees and look this direction. And you're going to see the same uh, two things that are addressed in these passages of Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah are actually two mountains that you can see from this perspective. If we turn to our right, we can see the Temple Mount. Here's the Dome of the Rock today. But in it today, this would have been the framework for Herod's Temple. So this is where Jesus just went and cleared the place out. Here's what it would have looked like in its day. That's the Temple of Herod. Massive thing. And because they had so exploited the court of the Gentiles, instead of inviting people in, getting a great taste in their mouths of the joy of what it means to, uh, to know a God who forgives us and loves us and covers our shame, they were exploiting them and manipulating them. And like I said, Jerusalem is up on a mountain, so this At that time, you know, this is pretty much you saying that mountain right there that you see that you go to, that you're in charge of, that's a mountain of hypocrisy. A little fun fact, though, if you turn 45 degrees to the left and look, you can see a mountain right there from the Mount of Olives, right in the distance. It's fascinating to me because in that previous passage last week, Jesus said, if you trust in me, you will be able to move mountains. The reason that's fascinating to me, and for most all of Jerusalem, you can see this mountain I don't know if Jesus pointed to it. Luke, he actually points to the mountain and says, you can say that mountain moved. I don't know if it's this one or not, but it's fascinating it might be because this was actually a moved mountain. Somebody moved that mountain there. What do you mean say move that mountain? That is a man-made mountain of idolatry built by King Herod. King Herod so wanted to be remembered as the all-powerful builder, the all-powerful, uh, he was a multi-multi-multi-multi-billionaire, and he wanted to build a, a, a headstone to himself. So he built a mountain to put his final resting place on. And he wanted to make sure it was tall enough that he could look down on the temple. And that's really what idolatry is. It's when you put yourself in a place where you're looking down on God. Where you've made something more important than God so you look down on it. A little background. Let's zoom in because we went over and got a chance to explore that a few years ago. This mountain... Just to zoom in, those are cars here, just to give you big, how big the mountain is. Herod built this thing bucket by bucket, load by load, with slave labor or certainly forced labor. He built this thing to put his house on top, one of his many, one of Masada, because he wanted the world to never forget who he was. And yet many just us go, Herod, he's that guy that's sort of a footnote in the Christmas story, right? Herod, who did all of this to build himself up to be remembered is now a footnote and Jesus who did everything he could to humble and put God first and who's a footnote in whose story at the top of the area he actually built this castle or this fortress so he could actually be living up in this uh, silo here and he could actually look down on God this was what idolatry looked like when everything is about you exalting yourself a couple of the photographs of it here is again from the other side what this idol looked like So again, I don't know if Jesus was referencing it, but it's amazing that he would reference moving a mountain in an area where you could actually see a mountain that had been moved. And I think in one sense he might be saying, Herod spent his whole life building something to make himself look great. But I tell you, if he put faith in my way, serving, caring, not making yourself the end of everything, it's my mountain that will change the world. It's my movement that will transform Rome and people's hearts. Whatever it is, It's important for us to know that the two feedback Jesus gives them from Jeremiah and Isaiah are about hypocrisy and idolatry. So what is an idol? Because if the religious people struggled with it then, then we probably struggle with it now. An idol is when you make a good thing an ultimate thing. It might be success. It might be achievement. When you find your identity in something besides God... And it causes fear and anxiety and insecurity because nothing's secure except God and His grace. Madonna had a very interesting quote several years ago, which I thought was very telling about the ways in which she had made an idol in her life and how it was not bringing her joy. She said, I have an iron will, and all of my will has been able to conquer this horrible feeling of inadequacy. That's what idols always do. It's never enough. I push past one spell of it and then discover myself as a, as a special human being again. Then I get to another stage. I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. See the insecurity of that? Even when you make it to her level, you still got to prove it. That's how an idol works. The idol of being famous. The idol of my whole identity as being somebody or not being mediocre. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will because the driving force behind this is not joy but fear. Sidney Pollock died and they wrote an article about his inability to just rest in his final years. His inability to slow down and enjoy his final years with his loved ones. He's the one that did movies like uh, Tootsie and others. Though he was unwell and the grueling process of filmmaking was wearing him down, he said, quote, he couldn't justify his existence if he stopped, said a friend. He explained, every time I finish a picture, I feel I've done what I'm supposed to do in the sense that I've earned my stay for at least one more year or so, and then I have to start over. Nothing wrong with achievement. Nothing wanting to, want to do more. But you see how he's earning his right to live his existence and then he's got to start over again? That's what an idol does in our life. In fact, Mary Kennedy works with uh, companies and C-suite type leaders and she talks about how achievement has become the idol in our world today. Here's what she says. Achievement is the alcohol of our time. These days the best people don't abuse alcohol, they abuse their lives. You're successful, so good things happen. You complete a project, you feel dynamite. But that feeling doesn't last forever. So you slide back to normal. You think, I've got to start a new project, and that's normal. But you love the feeling of euphoria. That's become your idol. So you've got to have it again. The problem is you can't stay on that high. Say you're working on a deal and it doesn't get approved. Your self-esteem is on the line. It's not just a deal. It's you. That's an idol. Because you've been gathering your self-worth externally. Externally. I am my kid's obedience. I am what my house looks like. I am my bank account. That's idolatry. Eventually in this cycle, you drop to the pain level more and more. The highs don't seem quite so high. You may win a deal that's even bigger than the one that got away, but somehow that deal doesn't get you back to the real idol of euphoria. Next time, you don't even get back to normal because you're so desperate about clenching the next deal. An achievement addict is no different from any other kind of addict. That's convicting to me because I think in any given day or any given hour, there's something I put in place of God. And I hypocritical say God's first in my life, but I don't think and make decisions based on God being first in my life because of idolatry. And again, these scribes and Pharisees, we make them out to be the bad guys, but these were the most religiously trained people in their day. And they fell prey to these two things. And when God addressed it with them, they deflected it. By saying, what's your credentials? What right do you have to say this? And Jesus does not take their deflection. He instead says, we're going to inspect your track record. Let's see if there's a pattern of you not hearing from God. Let's see if there's a pattern of you resisting what he's doing. So he checks out their track record. Jesus answered and said to them, hey, I want to ask you a question. You're asking me a question? I want to ask you one first. You answer me this, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. We're going to inspect your track record. Who's the last person that God sent or claimed to be from God? Let's talk about the baptism of John, John the Baptist. Was it from heaven or was it from men? Can you answer me? He says, you're questioning my authority. Let's see how you did with the last guy. There might be a pattern here that you do not listen to the person sent from God. There might be a pattern here of rejecting people who speak truth in your life. There might be a pattern here. Now, he gets them to begin to inspect. <laughs> Watch them ask themselves some questions. So they sort of huddle up. There he goes. They reasoned among themselves. Hey, they're reflecting. They're inspecting. And they said, all right. If we say it's from heaven, then he's going to say, well, then why didn't you believe him? And we didn't believe him because we didn't like what he said. We didn't like his feedback. So we can't say it's from heaven. However, if we say it's from men... There's a bunch of people here who really liked John and they thought it was from heaven. And they counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So here's the problem with the Pharisees they don't want to change, so they can't admit that it was from heaven, because then they'll be wrong. But they also have an idol of their power and their position and the people's popularity, so they can't say it was from men, because then they might lose their power structure and influence. So they're not going to repent. They can't say yes. They can't say no, because two of their idols are in competition. And Jesus is forcing them not to deflect, but inspect their track record. So they respond with this. We don't know. Who knows? We we know a lot of stuff. We're very, very intelligent. But who knows? That's a tough one, Jesus. Hmm. And the reason Jesus does this is because he knows they don't really want his credentials. They're not really seeking more information. They don't really want to obey. They don't really want to do better. They're just looking to discredit him. So he tries to instead show them they have a history of of crucifying, uh, of resisting, uh, of rejecting the people that God sends. Again, if the Pharisees did this, then you and I should do this because it's really interesting. One of the greatest forms of rebellion... One of the greatest forms of passive-aggressive rebellion in the human heart is inaction. Jesus gives you some feedback of what you maybe should do differently as a wife, as a husband, as a father, as a colleague. He begins to sort of nudge his still gentle voice, tells you about how you're handling your anger or, or how impatient you've been. And he gives you that feedback, and you respond by saying... I don't think I'm ready to look at that yet. I I, thank you for the feedback, Jesus. I think I'll keep doing what I've been doing for the last 20 years. It's worked out so well. And we think that that's neutral. The Bible calls that rebellion. It's passive-aggressive rebellion. God loves us to bring feedback into our life. We don't respond. We say, well, I don't know if I should do that or not. It's hard to say. I I think I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. Passive-aggressive rebellion. I wrote that quote in your notes. One of the greatest forms of rebellion is responding to reflection and introspection from God within action. To which Jesus says, huh, you don't know. Well, then guess what? Then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you don't know, then I don't know. And when you're ready to have a real discussion about what's really going on here and really examine the things you're doing, then I'd love to talk. Jesus responded to their deflection by pushing, pushing, pushing them to inspect. To which, again, if the most religious people who are the closest to God could have Jesus Christ himself in their face saying, I've got some things to share with you. And that close to God, people who worshipped in the temple and ran the temple, if they had a problem with, with deflection, guys, we should be scared to death of our own hearts. Because if they couldn't hear it from Jesus face to face, how might we not hear it from Jesus? We've got to work really, really hard to work away from our deflection to our inspection of saying, Spirit, search my heart. See if there is any evil, evil within me. God, let me walk through my day with you. Where was I not in step with your spirit? That's what God's asking for us. In her book, Thanks to the Feedback, she gives, I think, two really great skills that I think are helpful And I think when you apply the gospel to the skills she gives, it's it's got even more power. She says, two skills we need to develop if we're going to learn how to inspect rather than deflect. First, we've got to get over the wrong spotting. She said, we decide too soon what's bad feedback. Somebody comes to us and says, have you noticed the way you come across in a meeting? We immediately think, have you seen how you come across in a meeting? We immediately discount their feedback. Ah, oh, you're having a bad day. You're too insensitive. Ah, oh, this is your anger issues. Apparently you're stressed. We immediately spot bad feedback too soon. She encouraged us instead to investigate feedback. To, to, your first reaction is, that can't be true. But she said, don't make your first reaction your last reaction. We're all going to get defensive when we get critiqued. But when you feel that first reaction of critique, don't make that your last reaction. Instead, begin to ask questions. What if it is true? What part did I play in that? God, what might you want to teach me through this? Even though it was said poorly, even though it was said with bad timing, God, how might you want to grow me in this? And often, when you find yourself responding emotionally in inappropriate ways, it's often a sign that there's an idol at work. I had one this week, so I uh, notoriously will leave stuff out and forget about it. And so I had uh, done some balloons at Chick-fil-A a few weeks ago with uh, my son. Uh, Jave, and I were going to do it. Ultimately, he was in the hospital, so um, he was sort of finishing up uh, care. I was with him in the hospital. Don't you think about am a bad person. That's, that's the idol coming out right there. Um, so uh, I was at Chick-fil-A, and I left these balloons out. And so uh, my wife came up to me this week and said, hey, did you notice that the balloons are still out? I said, oh, no. She goes, you walk past them every day. How do you it? I said, I don't know. Okay. She goes, well, could you, could you pick those up? And, uh, you know, if I, if, if I hadn't noticed and said it to you, probably would be here another two weeks. To which I could have said, hey, thanks so much. Thanks for the feedback. I appreciate that. Uh, I'll take these in and, and I'll put them away. That's what I could have said. But somehow a simple conversation triggered an idol. The idol is, she's saying I'm a bad, and she said it very nicely. She's probably saying I'm a bad husband. She's saying that I'm not responsible. She's disrespecting me. So when she said, hey, if I didn't point this out, it'd probably be here for another two weeks. I responded with the very godly response of, you know, if I didn't pay the bills, probably they wouldn't be paid for two weeks. It didn't go over well. But even more weird is I took a moment and said, now that was so strange. So in that moment, some of this takes longer than this, I went, that was a pretty simple conversation. Why did I have an inappropriate reaction to that but not only did i apologize you know immediately within a minute or so i then said because i had to think i really had to think about like what went on there it wasn't just the balloons oh i had some like my identity is in being a good husband which i defined as my wife should never have any problems with me i remember early in our marriage uh my wife would say hey i heard something in the car it seems like the car's making a noise i'd get really defensive i had to really dig into that why am i getting so defensive Oh, because if our car has a problem and my wife notes a problem, that means I'm not a good provider because I can't buy a nice enough car. Now, none of that was intended by her. But what happened is my idol, was, I was defining myself by my wife's happiness or my, by my, my, whether my, my things ran well. And so I had to repent of that and realize that idol was keeping me from being able to have a normal conversation. So catch yourself when there's inappropriate emotion. In fact, funny, last night I was giving this talk on feedback. My son runs camera, and he came up to me right after the message, like 10 seconds after the message, because I was standing right here where Jeff is, and there's a camera that we have right up here against the pillar. And so Javen said, hey, when I'm running the left camera, um, it's going right over your head, and there's this beautiful, you know, the singers are up there, they're worshiping, and it's nice and dark in in the bottom section of the camera, except, Chad, except, Dad, your bald spot, you're losing your hair, and there's this bald spot right in the bottom of my camera shot. Thanks for the feedback. (laughs) Now, here's why if you make your looks your idol, any critique of your look, and for me it's weird because I I never imagined myself losing my hair, but I am in in all places. If that's an idol, you get really angry. If it's something you like, you're like, I know. You still may not like the critique. You still may not appreciate the critique initially. You still may have that reaction, but it doesn't crush you. You're disappointed, but not devastated. You're hurt, but you're not hysterical. So wrong spotting, catching ourselves in that. She mentions three triggers. Trigger number one is when something feels too true, and especially when good works is your identity, not God's grace, you see yourself as a good person. So somebody brings critique into your life, and you're like, that can't be true of me. I'm a good person. I don't want that to be true of me. I'm not going to listen. And that's so weird, because if you're a Christian... Don't we believe that we're all inherently sinners that Jesus died for? Then why are we so surprised when people mention sin to us? Oh My goodness, I can't believe I would never be unkind or impatient. Of course you would. You're a sinner. That's why Jesus died. And that's why the grace of God allows you to hear truth. Because you're never surprised by your own sin. You come to a conversation, you go, I probably did that. You know, that sounds just like me. Sinning. (laughs) That sounds like me. I probably have something to apologize for. I probably have something to own here. And the truth trigger, the grace of God allows you to hear it because you've already been humbled by the gospel and you've already been exalted by the gospel. You're secure in what Jesus did for you. And so you're able to say, this doesn't define me. This mistake doesn't define me. Two, she mentions the identity trigger that when you feel like your identity is being attacked, it's not just critique, it's your whole identity. It takes you longer to recover. It takes you longer to respond. They found a 3,000% difference between those who responded to the same criticism one way and another. 3,000. And they said the reason was the people who took longer to respond is because their whole identity was wrapped up in this. This is why the gospel in Jesus frees you from that. Your identity is not in how good of a wife you are, how good of a husband you are, how you perform, how big your savings are. And that creates incredible freedom to hear feedback. You don't have to deflect it. You can inspect it and look into it and find out if it's true. The second thing she mentions is that you need to work to see yourself accurately. She said we need supportive mirrors and truth mirrors. People who support us and they tell us what we're like at our best. And we need truthful people who tell us what we're like at our worst. We need both. And often we use our supportive mirrors to deflect our truth mirrors. Somebody comes and says, you know, I've noticed in the office there's really some gossip going on. You seem to be the source of it you call calling me a gossip? And we run to one of our best friends, our supportive mirror. Did you know what my boss said? He says, I'm a gossip. He said, that guy is such a jerk. He has always given this kind of feedback to me. He thinks I'm a gossip. How inappropriate is that? That so he would think I'm a gossip. And you start gossiping about the guy who called you a gossip. And your friend goes, oh, you're not a gossip. You're great. And he's terrible. You don't have to listen to any of that nonsense. Because you at your best are awesome. And you discount the feedback. And we all need supportive feedback, but we also need people who say, you know what, I think I've noticed that pattern. That might be something you want to look into. You might want to check yourself, listen to yourself for a day. What Jesus offers is that he wants to be both the supportive feedback and the truth feedback in your life. In, in the book of John, it says that Jesus was filled with grace and truth. He fills and creates an environment of grace for us. You're loved, everything's forgiven, past, present, future. Whatever we discover, I already knew about, I've already forgiven. <sighs> now I want to conform you to the image of my son. And we gotta work on this. And we gotta change this. The grace of God allows you to inspect the truth and hear the feedback. And you begin to grow because you're growing in freedom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your work. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for how you challenge us. Thank you for how you work in us. Continue to grow us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today. If you came, prepared to give us some offering boxes on your way out. If you are new to the church or would just like to meet somebody, third door on your left is the hearth room. We'll see you all next week.